Welcome to Calliope's Sanctum, a bi-weekly story podcast hosted by me, writer Sylvia V. Linstead. This podcast is dedicated to Calliope, primordial and first muse of epic poetry and ecstatic song in ancient Greece. This podcast is a place of sanctuary for her oldest stories. It's a return to the wild garden, to the spring, to the ground of being and the source of inspiration in the earth. Here, we honor Calliope as muse of earth. Here, you'll find some of the stories beneath the stories of old Europe. Short fictional or poetic pieces written by me that explore elements of indigenous old European mythology. And this is a term coined by the late archaeologist Maria Gambutas. And with a focus on pre-Hellenic, pre-patriarchal Greece. So come sit with us in the honeyed light among the ripe pomegranates in Calliope's sanctuary where the stories that arise directly from the ground of being and life force can still be safely told and celebrated. Come lean against the sun-warmed stones with the fragrance of propolis and myrrh in the air and the trees heavy with autumn quince. This is the garden before the fall, a sanctuary for all hearts in this time. Join us and be revived. Greetings, lovely podcast listeners. Um, I'm recording this new episode of Calliope Sanctum under the light of uh, beautiful Venus in the western sky on the night of the waning moon. And I don't actually think that I have a lot by way of introduction for this episode's story, except to tell you that um, it's going to be in two parts. So this is a recording of a short story of mine called Rhea Sylvia that is published in my short story and poetry collection, Our Lady of the Dark Country, which you can order anywhere that books are found. And I wrote this story, I think almost three years ago, as a reimagining of the story of Rhea Sylvia, the so-called mother of Rome. Um, Well, I guess there is a little bit of introduction to her. Um, I'm interested in her story for many reasons, but one of them being that her name is really interesting to me, and not primarily because it has my name in it. Um, Although that's nice. That's a nice aside for me, but... um, I'm interested in her name because Rhea, you know, was the great mountain goddess, one of the great goddesses of Greece, one of the titans. And Sylvia means wood nymph or um, sort of spirit of the forest. And it really, it, it is probably an, a name for a woodland goddess. And so those two things together suggest to me that um, the mother of Rome, you know, the mother of Romulus and Remus, the founders of Rome, the twins who founded the city, was probably an older imagining of that region, um, a goddess. And in my story, she's not, but she becomes sort of immortal by the end. And I just wanted to kind of hold that older, kind of indigenous, Italian, italic, tribal feeling of the older powers of the land in her I really think the story speaks for itself, um, so that's why I'm not giving a huge introduction to it. I think it speaks for itself in terms of kind of the underpinnings of the story, and you'll get a sense through her voice 
of, you know, sort of what was said to have happened to her versus what actually happened to her in her telling. Um, so really, I think the most important thing to know is just that I was trying to return to her story that indigenous, older, tribal, um, Italian culture, because really, before the rise of um, Rome and around 700 BC, Italy was just comprised of many, many tribes who spoke many different languages and lived in a very different way than kind of what patriarchal colonial Rome wanted. (laughs) Um, So that's explored in this story. For example, there's an interesting suggested connection between the Etruscan language. Um, So the Etruscan people were a tribal people in the area of Rome in that um, region in Tuscany, a little north, um, before Rome and Latin, Latin was spoken. And Etruscan as a language is, um, by some scholars thinking, possibly related to the language that was spoken in Crete before the arrival of Mycenaean Greeks. So the Minoan language, um, which is written in a script as linear A and which is as yet undeciphered because um, this is controversial. Definitely not everyone would agree with me, but in my opinion, it's definitely not an Indo-European language like Latin or like Greek, which is the reason why nobody can decipher it um, because it really doesn't have a close living relative anymore, but Etruscan has a lot of similar characteristics and, you know, some people will even say, and this might be kind of out there, I'm not, but maybe not, I, I don't know enough at this point, um, but some people have even said that after the kind of invasion, sort of a soft, slow invasion, but an invasion of Mycenaean Greeks to um, Minoan Crete, after 1400 BC, there were many waves of refugees of Minoan families who fled Crete to other areas and definitely some went to Italy. And anyway, it's said that possibly there's a connection in the language um, with Etruscan, maybe from even a group of people who arrived at that time or long before. You know, I'm not sure. I, I have a feeling that it's a much older language than that. But there is an interesting connection in the sense that uh, both were much more egalitarian cultures than Rome, Roman culture, or than later Greek culture, Minoans and Etruscans. So they are rooted in that older sort of stratum of probably matrilineal, quote, old European, as um, described by Maria Gambutas, the Lithuanian archaeologist culture. Here I go. I'm making a long introduction after all. <laughs> I thought I wasn't going to. But I think I will stop there and just say again, so this is part one of the reading of Rea Silvia, and part two will be released in about two weeks' time because it's a fairly long story, so I'm breaking it up over two readings. And I will put a link in the notes to the book title um, in case you want to read some other stories in that collection yourself or just revisit this story in print Oh, I do also want to say just in the name of kind of honoring the creative process, I was really moved. I remember the feeling of writing this story, and I was very moved by the way that it came through. It still stands in my memory as one of the most like dictated feeling stories that I've ever written, where I was just sitting at my desk just writing this. It was just coming through like someone was speaking to me, and it almost alarmed me. I really, to this day, don't know all the way where it came from, and You know, that always happens to a degree with writing, but it was very potent in the writing of this story. So 
I think this is always true that we can say, you know, we're kind of just the medium through which creativity passes, so we can't really take a whole lot of um, ownership, I would say, over it. I mean, I don't mean that in a, um, you know, getting out of responsibility way, but just like honoring that these things come through from elsewhere in all creative forms and all writing. But this one really just struck me in that way. Often it's a lot harder to let a story through than this was. So I really felt like she was speaking in some way, and I'm still very moved when I read it, both silently, you know, just on the page, but especially out loud. So I really hope you enjoy this telling, and please, you know, always feel free to uh, leave feedback, comments, um, reviews, let me know how you're enjoying this. It's an honor to be sharing these stories with you, and I really hope that they are nourishing you in the way that they have nourished me to write and to then record. Oh, a very important note. I am sorry that I forgot to say this earlier, but I do want to give a trigger warning for this story for any listeners for whom hearing about rape, even um, indirectly, is going to be difficult, traumatizing, or triggering. So that is part of the story of what happened to Rhea Sylvia, and I just want to give fair warning. That particular scene doesn't enter the story until part two, so not this recording. Rhea Sylvia. They call me the mother of Rome, as if I should be honored by the name. As if, after all that has been done, I should be glad of what it was my body began. They call me mother of Rome now, but in the beginning, I was Rhea Sylvia. Mostly just Rhea, a girl who loved the beechwood and who tended well the fire. I was mortal then, but the love of the Tiber has since made me otherwise. And so I am in the river and in the trees still, watching the city that long ago laid the roadways to the end of the world. All this, and it began when a woman's body was caught under the hands of war. For so I was. I had felt it in my uncle's gaze from the time I was a child. I felt the strain its absence made in my father Numitor, king of Alba Longa. He valued peace, which there was little of in the territories beyond Albalanga. Still, it lived in him. Other men did not always like him, for he carried peace like a woman carries a child, out in the open in front of him, proudly, for all to see. I adored him, and so did my mother, even though she was no ordinary Latin wife, but a woman of the forest, Sylvia. She named me for herself, she of the wood, a daughter of trees. It is no ordinary man who can coax one of the old people of the forest to be his wife, but my mother consented to be Numitor's. She came from the great wood that covered the Apennine Mountains south and east of my father's land, the old oak and beech forests where in spring the woodland flowers made a blue and white froth and sun through the new leaves was a numinous green. My mother took me there often in spring and in summer. 
For weeks at a time we would go, just she and I, taking one mule along to carry our bedskins and baskets, one jug of fine wine to offer the trees, and another for her family. My mother taught me how to speak with the hare and the deer and the woodpecker. She taught me the name of every plant that grew there and their every use, and the way to talk to a beech, which was different than an oak or holly or hawthorn, a sycamore or a pine. She taught me to use a bow, how to skin a rabbit, how to make fire with two sticks, how to sing until a star fell through the night, how to calm an angry boar, how to earn the respect of wolves. There was a spacious cave in the mountains where we slept on the fine lambskins we brought. Wood violets grew outside under the beech shade. I loved the crunch of my feet through their bronze leaves. In all seasons, they covered the ground, the new and old leaves together. My mother's people visited us there, bringing meat to share on the fire, bear sometimes, and deer, and a kind of wild wood wine made of honey and berries that was sometimes delicious and sometimes sour as vinegar. We never went to their village place because they moved with the seasons and because it was dangerous in case we were followed by my uncle's men. They would have liked to see all the mountain people killed or brought as slaves into the cities of Latium and the trees there claimed for timber. My father kept them from it, but barely. My mother's folk were quiet, kind, and gentle people. When I was very young, I believed the stories I heard whispered about her among my father's servants and the people of the farms and fields of Albalanga that she was part tree herself or part doe, a dryad, a nymph, a witch at the least. Does that make me part tree as well? I would wonder, sitting by the Tiber with my feet in the current, examining my hands for green or for bark. No, my mother assured me, the forest people weren't dryads, though they could surely speak with trees. They were the first people, she told me, when I was old enough to also understand the word war. The last of the ones who had been here, living on the land of the place my father called Latium, and they called an older, secret name since the beginning of time. Our people, she told me, rocking me on her lap by the fire among them, her legs bare and sticking to my bare legs. They were here before even the great volcano first filled the sky with ash and turned the valleys to wastelands. Our people lived through that. Our people know how out of ash may one day grow the most beautiful gardens. Our people remember the time when great elephantine beasts walked here and lions gold as wild barley and the stars were people who walked among us too. She taught me their language, which was much softer than the Latin of my father and the Greek I'd heard spoken by traders and knew a few words of. Closer to the Etruscans, some of the servants spoke, and yet not that either, but stranger and softer still. Speaking my mother's language, I saw things differently. I forgot that I was separate from the wood, the wolf, the wind, the bronze leaves underfoot, the quail I skinned with my bare hands. I had known the gods and goddesses of my father's people all my life. I had dutifully performed the seasonal rites with the vestal priestesses, 
learning from his mother, my grandmother, the way of hearth and earth and ancestors. But in my mother's language, among my mother's people, I saw them. I remember the first time it happened. I was ten and spoke my mother's way fluently by then, as wild and dark as any of my cousins, running free through the summer wood. That day, I was alone with the clay jug down by the spring below the cave, gathering water. Across the stream, a young stag raised his head and looked at me. He had two short antlers beginning to grow like the budding tips of fruit trees, all covered in velvet. They shone. He looked up at me entirely, and in him I saw a god. He was a god. I made a sound. Swift as water, he was gone. But his look lingered behind him. Black-eyed, clear, his velvet antlers shining. A little god. His look had looked at me from an eternal place. All animals are little gods, I said to myself. I ran back to my mother with this revelation. The water half spilled by the time I reached her, where she sat in the sun with her basket, separating hazelnuts from their husks. She kissed my cheeks and scolded me over the water, but said, Now you sound like one of us, my daughter. Today you have no Latin accent. Today you are of the wood. The God has shown his eyes to you, and I am proud. People talked, of course. How could the king allow his wife and only daughter to disappear unarmed into the mountain and the mountain's forests for weeks at a time? Surely the queen was a dryad. Did she sleep with wolves when she was away? Did her daughter too, the young whelp? But my father Numitor had worked hard to keep peace in his land among his people, and they knew this. They felt it in the safety of their outer fields at night. And they, too, let their children run unarmed and unattended. They trusted him. But the king, they whispered still, is he being made a cuckold? And does he not see his brother's treachery waiting for the chance to spring? He should keep his wife and daughter near. You never know what might happen. I heard all this from the servants, the kitchen women, and the ones who helped my mother in the weaving room. I listened when they thought I wasn't there. I had the quiet of mild creatures about me, and the cunning. I learned that from my mother. She never did have much attention for the spindle or the thread, and her weaving was penetrated by little inconsistencies where she had stopped and gone to the windows to breathe an autumn wind, or watch a gray dove fan out her tail as she flew, or look to the mountains east and south and begin in her mind to plan another journey there. After the first acorn fall... She said one day at the window. I was 14, she 37, with a little silver at her temples, but her eyes young as ever. Young, I imagined, as the day my father first saw her in the oak wood where he was hunting boar with a few of his men. She was already a full-grown woman then. Not, she told me, grinning once, a maid. Not close. Not nearly. Your father's people are so strange to value such a thing in brides. Your father was glad of it, too, come our wedding night. My mother always spoke that way. I didn't know until I was starting to grow into a woman myself that the other girls' mothers did not. I would speak of opening crocuses as little vulvas full of earth's desire. 
I would watch the stalking, well-hung tomcat mount at Tabby and ask aloud if she felt pleasure. This made the other girls go scarlet and stammer, and their mothers call me names. At the window the day I was fourteen, my mother looked at the mountain and spoke of going there, lightly, as she always did. We hadn't been since the first of spring six months past. But since then it had seemed to me that many things had changed. The ground did not feel stable beneath my feet as it once had. Maybe it was just the changes in my body, the feeling that I was growing up. But also it was the rumors I heard, and my uncle's eyes on me when he visited, not familial, but frightening, too bright. My uncle, I said to her softly, the other women always like to eavesdrop. He stinks of war, mother. He's stirring it up among our allies. It isn't safe now. You sound like your father, she replied, her eyes still far away, twisting at a bit of black wool that had broken off the spindle. I could see the cave and the beech wood in her eyes, the autumn fall of leaves, the smoke from fires under stars, her brother's warm and laughing arms welcoming her home again, A part of her was always going home whenever she looked that way toward the mountains and the distant trees. But you heard it too, mother, about the slaughter of the northern tribes, how they're raiding Sabine cattle and uncle allied with their men to kill them all. Wild people like yours. I've never seen father angrier. The men have the taste of war again. After 16 years of peace, that's what he says, and the farmers and the kitchen women too. Uncle hates you and me. You know that. He hates where you came from. He is only one man, my mother spat, stamping one bare foot on the stone floor the way she did when she was angry, when she wanted to feel the power of earth inside her. But I saw fear hiding in her eye, too. A heron flew past the window just then, up from the marsh at the river's edge, winging toward the land across the river, toward those seven distant hills. His wingbeats were slow and gray, and he called out once in a harsh voice. Dread leapt through me at the sound. Over dinner that night, my mother mentioned the autumn journey to my father. For acorns, Numitor, she said in a low voice, her eyelashes the color of dusk, and her hair too. A dark woodland dusk. I could almost smell it. I knew my father could. Sometimes I was certain of my mother's magic. Other times I thought she was only a woman who knew the forest's ways and so was powerful and different from others I knew. Perhaps these are one and the same thing. I will make your favorite spiced nut wine in time for Saturnalia, she went on. It's been long. My brothers will fear Albalonga has forsaken them. They must be afraid, hearing news from the north about Amulius and his allies with the Sabines. I could assure them of their protection. Your going now might well be the greatest risk to to their safety, my love, Numitor replied, taking up the hand that touched his hand and turning it over to kiss the dark palm. I saw the shiver run up my mother's neck. I knew my mother's perfume. Rose oil and musk and dry leaves. My father knew it better. He breathed deep from her wrist before lifting his head and taking a swallow of wine. I fear Amulius will follow you. I don't know how I could prevent it. He's restless, prowling for a fight like a caged wolf, 
Farming never satisfied him, and peace makes him restless. Perhaps I've been a fool. He stirs it in the others. This business with the Sabines, I fear it's only a beginning. He undermines me, and yet to retaliate is to break what is most sacred in me. He sighed and drained his cup. It rattled when he set it down. The bronze caught the fire's glow. I saw my face in it, long and dark and solemn like my mother's. But I saw I had my father's nose, his chin and curving hairline, and this made me glad. He was a striking man, my father. Only a little older than my mother, perhaps by five years, but with much more silver, and lines all around his eyes and forehead. The cost of carrying peace inside him when the world always seemed hungry for war. The cost of holding a kingdom together by gentleness, integrity, intelligence, and trust, and not by fear. It took all of him and lined him. I saw this clearly in that moment, and saw why my mother would have left her people to be his queen. You know I am quiet as a doe and take the forest paths, my mother replied. No one sees us. Amulius has tried to follow before. I didn't tell you. I didn't want to worry you, but he is no match for me. I am a wolf when I must be, Numitor. I leave no trace, and the trees look after me. And you know how it will go with me if I do not go home soon. I must be watered. I must. Her voice had a desperate edge. It alarmed both me and him. His eyes were dark, but my father sighed and kissed her, and I knew she had won. The next morning, my first bleeding came. This, I thought, must have been the cause for my anxiety, my presentiments of doom. It delayed our journey a little, but my mother was delighted. She took me down to the Tiber and bathed me in the way of her people, singing old songs to the water, singing of my beauty as a growing living thing, singing of me as an oak, a nut, a flower, a quail. I wept, feeling sore and afraid and glad all at once. Other women came. They burned laurel smoke around me and fed me honeycomb and saffron and crowned me with purple crocus petals. The river up to my waist felt cool and soft. I saw myself rippled in the light green water, shifting. It seemed for a moment I could see myself growing and changing. I reached out underwater and clasped my hands together with the exhilaration of that feeling. For a moment, it seemed I held the hand of some other being. The river himself. It was a strong, big hand. Then it was gone, and a younger woman was teasing me. Open up your legs, she said. The river will teach you of your own body with his current, of where the pleasure lies. So is that what you're up to when you're late to the weaving? My mother teased back, her breasts shining copper above the water. We were all naked in a shaded part of the river under sycamore trees. No man would have dared disturb our rituals today, but even so, my mother had stationed several of her women to guard the river bend where it opened on the town. I blushed, though I had thought before that these matters didn't embarrass me. But it was true. The water felt nice there, different than it had on any other day. Alive. The feeling didn't go away when I left the river. 
It stayed with me all the while traveling into the mountain with my mother. My bleeding was light, but I was tired after it was over, and my mother let me ride the mule instead of walking. That seemed to make the feeling stranger. There was a warmth at the very quick of me, right between my legs. I had never known that before. Vestal, like the beginning of a fire. The women said your first bleeding was the beginning of being grown, a ripening so that you in turn might make new life. They had not said how it made you also a fire. I wondered if maybe it was like the one we kept for Vesta at the sacred hearth, something that would never go out. These things I thought of and felt as we went along, distracted and flushed. My mother took a circuitous way to get there, just in case my uncle followed us, but what she had told my father was true. She was quiet and clever as the deer, as the wolf. We hardly left a trace. We followed animal paths through the beech wood, through meadows up to the valley beyond which her people live, under the snow-topped peak of their mother mountain. It was a very good time, that autumn visit when I was 14, Perhaps because of what had awakened in my body, I remember it with particular vividness. Perhaps because we went only once more after that, but that time ended in a darkness too complete for me to speak of before I first tell you of this time, the penultimate, so I have it to hold as a crocus flower, a bright thing. The time I was 14 holds all the other times since I was a girl, caught in amber in my memory. My mother, smiling to herself, seemed to understand just what was beneath my flesh. The first night, back among her people, as we ate and sang around a great fire, she sat me beside the three sons of her childhood friend, Thisbe, who I called Aunt. Everyone hooted then. The men whistled in praise, for my mother doing so showed them all that I was a woman now and could sit among men as I pleased. I was terribly red all over. I felt hot. I felt the ember of myself, and it frightened me, so I had a good swallow of my mother's wine, which I didn't much like, and tried to speak to the brother nearest my age. I cannot recall his name now, for it was the young singer who regaled us with songs of the trees, the deaths of brave warriors and mothers, the love story of the hunter and the dear woman who watched me and who I watched too. All the night long we watched each other, As he sang the tales, he watched me, and for the first time in my life, I relished the feeling of a man's gaze. There was dancing. My mother gave me her own fringed skirt, and I, a little dizzy with wine, danced with the grown women, swinging my hips as they did, feeling now why they did. Because it was as a bellows on a fire, on a power, we were a light. The younger girls watched me in awe as I had watched others before me don their mother's skirts. Nobody made a great fuss, but all noticed me that night, and most of all, I noticed what was in my body that I had never known. When the waning moon rose at last and the fire was low, all sought their beds but the young singer and me. He found me at the wood's edge watching the moon too alive to sleep. It rose the color of an ember over the eastern ridge through oaks. I did not seem able to catch my breath. I turned to him like a flame in wind, and I kissed him. His name was Ver. All through the night we kissed. He was very gentle, very kind, 
never pushing, only kissing and caressing me until I was liquid. We slept in the beech leaves under his fox coat and woke in the morning besotted. Later in the day, down by the creek, washing our road-worn things, my mother teased me. I could not reply, for what had happened in me set me adrift in myself, a whole sea where a mother cannot go. She knew this and stopped teasing. Instead, she solemnly tucked a late wood violet into my wet black hair as we laid our clothing to dry on the stones and said, Now you know the secret that all women know. People will make a fuss about their gods and what is holy and what is not. They will call this and that a mystery and tiptoe round the fire in the temple. But today, daughter, you know the mystery behind their mysteries, that all of the world is suffused with that pleasure, that what you feel stir in you is the light that is all of life. You now know the pleasure of myrtle flowers and quince fruit and oak leaves opening. But remember, at the root of the fruit you have picked dwell the dead. At the beginning and end of all earth's pleasure, the dead. This is what we dance for, what we love for. The eternal return, gods. It is terrible, but it is also sweet. I have never forgotten those words. In my memory, that autumn stay among her people is suffused with them. I was, like she said, the pleasure of the ripe earth, the acorn sleek and plump and shining. I thought, for those brief days, I understood everything. The language of every tree and stream and stone and rutting stag, even the language of the dead. My mother often sent me and the young singer off with an acorn basket, bemused, not confident that we would be very diligent, and so gathering more than enough of her own, too. She was right, too. We came back with spined oak leaves in our hair and hardly any acorns. When we left, I wept as if I were dying. Though it was a small thing compared with what I have known and wept for since, I do not belittle her yet, my girlish self. For to my young heart, leaving the singer was the sorest ache I had ever known. What I had felt was all pure and wild as new fawn skin, as the softest berries for all my mother's words of death. Now I thought I understood just a little of it, the danger of feeling so strongly, of love. She let me weep. She held my hand and picked me autumn hawthorn berries and strung them on a thread. Oh, to have lost only that, an autumn crush, the first young taste of love. That is a gentle fruit, a quince eased pink over embers. I have since been bared, been stripped, been cut to earth and trampled. Only I know still my mother's truth, but now I know it better than I ever wanted to. Better than any woman should, for I am not just a woman anymore. I know it like the river knows it now, like the roots of trees that once grew beneath the city of Rome and will again. Not long after we returned, my mother found she was carrying a child. She had tried so many years to bear my father a son, but none of her pregnancies since me had held. A son to be king when he was gone, 
This my mother had wanted as, as much as my father did, for she had a dread of Amulius, my uncle, ascending the throne of Alba Longa one day. So for the next four years, we did not go to the wooded mountain of her people, though we sent word of her pregnancy to her brothers and the day of the boy's birth in early summer. She doted on him, her late, miraculous boy. She would not leave his side. Much to the scandal of the women, she refused a wet nurse or even a maid to help her. Only I was allowed near enough to change him or dress him, the little prince of Alba Longa. I had never seen her so happy, not even among her people making acorn cakes with a niece or gathering elderflowers with an old aunt. She nursed my brother in the courtyard in the sun, where my father long ago had planted orange trees for her, traded from the Greeks because she loved the smell of their blossoms. When my brother was born, the last blossoms were falling. The people of Alba Longa, who loved my mother and my father equally, left votives at the gate, rough figurines of women, handfuls of crocus or chamomile, that she might bless them, she who had borne a son so miraculously, so late. My father refused that his son should go to the mountain to meet her people, and for once my mother, docile as a milk cow, agreed, her big, dark eyes bright on their son. And so I did not see the young singer called Ver for many years, but that ache, a small thing really, passed by the first winter as I helped my mother with her tasks while her belly swelled, spinning and weaving, shaping clay votives for the sanctuaries, preparing offerings for our ancestors, for the wood genie, the local gods, the river and wild birds, feeding, stoking, and banking the vestal fire at the center of the palace. I was busy and forgot him soon. It was a good time the time of my brother's birth, and those first three-odd years of his life. A window of peace, impossibly still and calm, like a high summer noon when nothing stirs but the welling songs of the bronze-winged cicadas. Now I see it as the stillness before a storm. I could not see it then. I was young and blooming still. I was only aware of my own blossoming, I often ran off to the river with or without the washing, with or without my handmaids. I had a hidden place I liked to swim, where the broad river pooled under ancient sycamores and the banks were wide. Sometimes I thought the river watched me. I daydreamed of him, splashing in the clear water between lime banks, imagining what kind of man he would be, that river with a thousand hands. In my mother's language, the river and the tree and the woodpecker all looked back with their intelligence at me. The Tiber seemed to hold me gently, enjoying the words I spoke to him in her tongue. Sometimes I brought my little elder flute and danced naked on the warm rocks, thinking I might conjure him. Some days he looked like Ver, who I longed for fervently for a little while. Later he was more grown, a man like the farmers I saw working strong-backed, in the fields with their shirts off in the heat, muscled and big-armed. I dallied. I was a girl of 14, of 15, of 16, naive and lusting after wild irises, honeycomb, rainstorms, the touch of men, music, and dance. I was a giddy, feral thing. I do not know 
whether I was beautiful the way men sought, but I had more life force in me than a young doe, than a grapevine, than any other girl of Albalonga, and I could feel the eyes of boys and men and women too, and trees and rocks and birds and the river god, and savored them all. I must have been such a painfully innocent sight back then. It makes me sorrow now to remember. When my little brother turned four, everything changed. My uncle, Amulius, had been quiet those years. We took his seeming meekness for acquiescence, even fondness for his nephew. A son had been born. His hopes for the throne were lost. And he played the part of a good uncle, even a doting one. He brought wooden toys from his travels north for horses, a miniature cart, a carved red stallion, a duck with wheels. He was gone often on such trips in those years. We hoped he was looking further north for some bit of country to seize for his own. We should have suspected something worse. Perhaps my father did, but could not see what else to do but trust his younger brother, who he loved, and continue to raise his son to husband his flocks and herds, to carry out the rights that kept the land fertile, the rivers flood regular, the harvest rich. But not long after my brother's fourth birthday, when I and my maids were up ladders barefoot in the walnut trees, gathering green husked nuts to make our yearly spiced wine, my uncle rode through Alba Longa, right into the courtyard of my father's great house with an army at his back. I saw this all from the top branches of a walnut down in my father's orchards just outside the palace walls, men streaming through the peaceful city, armed and armored, shining like a hundred cicadas, their horses' hooves loud on the stone streets. People hid inside. I could see some running at the sound of armed men. In the fields, farmers and their wives and children hid, watching from behind wagons or the stands of barley. From up the tree, the red of the summer poppies that bloomed in the fields looked to me for a terrible moment like a seep of blood. I bade my maids to be silent and those nearer the ground to run and quickly somewhere hidden. I knew my uncle's colors from a distance. I understood the language of their armor. They did not come in peace or in negotiation. My father's standing army was loyal and fierce, but a fraction of this one. I heard fighting already from the courtyard. I could see my hill city gleaming white in the hot sun all across the rising land. I could see the Tiber flowing pale green between farmland, past the orchard, and on for several miles toward the sea. Everything that had been held for my lifetime in peace still looked peaceful, still carried peace. Only the sound of bronze on bronze and men screaming proved that it had been broken. My father surrendered Albalonga without much of a fight. He ordered his men to lay down their arms, for he saw that this would be a massacre if they did not. Already all those at the gates had been cut down, so my mother told me later. Numator, my father, negotiated with his younger brother. He agreed to live in exile among his wife's people in the mountains if Amulius would spare his men would not cause his beloved farmers to take up weapons and be killed. You do not make the terms, brother, my uncle spat. It is I who make them now, for I could kill you with one stroke if I chose, and your son. He did not. My mother thought it was lost love that stayed his hand. 
In the final moment, she said, he could not, after all, kill his own brother. He was being merciful, she said, as we rode out in the dusk in plain clothing. We rode shaggy workhorses through the moonlit fields. We did not want our people to know and follow us, their king and queen in exile and shame, running away like dogs. But my mother and my father both would have done anything to keep their children and their people safe. The barley and the wheat brushed our feet. The climbing beans looked so eager in the moonlight, little green hands and tendrils. I don't know why I remember them still, in the quiet. No dogs barked as we passed. My mother was nodding and re-nodding a piece of red wool in her fingers, a charm for protection, tying up the voices of the dogs. My little brother rode in front of me on my mount. His hair and head leaned on my chest. He was half asleep after a short time, though at first he had been entirely thrilled to be on the run, not really understanding why. To mother's people, he had cried as I saddled the horse. Will I learn to skin a rabbit as fast as you, Rhea? Will I learn to talk to trees like mother? His excitement made me want to weep. He did not know it was his head as much as my father's that my uncle sought. The boy might grow up to lead an uprising and depose him. He could not be let to live. I did not know this then, but I sensed it, I think. I sensed the doom around him. My young brother, with his skinny, dark neck craning eagerly as a little bird's, as I hoisted him up into the saddle and followed my parents out of the sweet-smelling stable where the field horses were kept, out through the back lanes toward the mountain. We rode all night. I wondered at my uncle's clemency more and more as we went. It seemed too generous that he would let us flee this way, choosing our own exile. And yet, I reasoned, trying to quell my dread, he was our uncle. He had sat me on his knee when I was a girl and sung old rhyming songs, and once had given me a blue ribbon and a copper bell from Scythia, where he had gone to trade for fine metalwork and horses. In truth, there was only once or twice that I recalled when he actually had the patience to sit and sing to me and give me gifts, and then, probably only after a long dinner and several cups of my father's finest wine, but still... He did not want us dead, surely not. So I soothed myself. The moon moved over us, and faintly the constellation called the Scorpion wheeled in the south, her navel glinting red. Now and then an owl screamed. My brother's head lulled, smelling of yesterday's sun and wheat, and a last sweet hint of babyhood, when he had smelled entirely of rising bread and honey. I kissed the top. We ascended into darkness, beyond the river valley, into the foothills. My mother knew the way in the dark. Once or twice I thought I heard something behind us, but faintly. Animal noises only, I told myself. My mother and father didn't speak at all except to bid me hurry or slow or go more gently. Once, when my father turned his face back for me, I saw it glint under the setting moon with tears. All the lines around his eyes looked deeper, like wounds. The air was damp and cold as we went higher between stones and twisted oaks. My mother took us a circuitous way. She too had heard noises and didn't trust my uncle. But it seemed too elaborate, too cruel, to send a brother into exile only to follow and kill him. It would have been much easier to kill us all right there in our great hall in Albalonga. 
So we were not overcautious and reached the cave by dawn, where we slept all day in a kind of heart-sick daze. My father would not eat or drink. He shook, not from fear but from loss and from anger at himself for his own stubborn pact with peace. In his face flashed the desire to kill. At sunset, my mother went to the ridge above the cave and called out in the voices of the cuckoo and the tawny owl, as she always did, to tell her people we had come. They arrived a short time later as silent as deer, suddenly all around us, weeping with happiness to see my mother and me after so many years. They were wary of my father until my mother explained. I was passed between arms and kissed on both cheeks by aunts and uncles and grandparents and cousins in a great ululation of grief and gladness both, that we were in exile, that we were home. Vare was there, but we seemed a little distant and embarrassed. I will never forget the look of terror and delight on my brother's face when he first saw our mother's people, brown as the trees and dressed in soft deerskins that clicked with amber beads and coral. Are they spirits? He whispered to me when we laid down that night to sleep, well fed and warm by their fire. Is mother really a dryad, like people say? At this I laughed. I don't think so, I replied, stroking his dark hair. But I wonder too sometimes. We fell asleep that way. My hand on my brother's hair, there among the old beech trees on the mountain where the first people still lived, thinking of our mother. <laughs>